Chapter Nineteen of My Path to Atheism by Annie Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen, The Order for the Visitation of the Sick. Of all the services in the prayer book, this is perhaps the most striking relic of barbarism, the most completely at variance with sound and reasonable thought. The clergyman entering into a house of sickness and as he enters the sick man's room and catches sight of him, kneeling down and exclaiming as though horror-stricken, "'Remember not, Lord, our iniquities, nor the iniquities of our forefathers. Spare us, good Lord, spare thy people, whom thou hast redeemed with thy most precious blood, and be not angry with us for ever.' This clergyman reminds one of nothing so much as one of Job's friends, who appear to have been an even more painful infliction than Job's boils. The sickness, the patient is told, is God's visitation, and for what cause soever this sickness is sent unto you, whether it be to try your faith for the example of others, or else it be sent unto you to correct and amend in you whatsoever doeth offend the eyes of your heavenly Father, know you certainly that if you truly repent you of your sins, and bear your sickness patiently, it shall turn to your profit and help you forward in the right way that leadeth unto everlasting life. One might question the justice of Almighty God, if the theory be correct, that the sickness may be sent to try your patience for the example of others. Why should one unfortunate victim be tormented, simply that others may have the advantage of seeing how well he bears it? If we are to endeavour to conform ourselves to the image of God, then it would seem that we should be doing right if we racked our neighbours occasionally to try their patience for the example of others. And is the idea of God a reverent one? What should we think of an earthly father who tortured one of his children in order to teach the others how to bear pain? If we should condemn the earthly father as wickedly cruel, why should the same action be righteous when done by the Father in heaven? If we accept the second reason given for the sickness, it is difficult to see the rationale of it. Why should illness of the body correct illness of the mind? Does pain cure fretfulness, or fever increase truthfulness? Is not sickness likely rather to bring out and strengthen mental faults than to weaken them? And how far is it true that sickness is, in any sense, the visitation of God for moral delinquencies? Is it not true, on the contrary, that a man may lie, rob, cheat, slander, tyrannise, and yet, if he observe the laws of health, may remain in robust vigour, while an upright, sincere, honest, and truthful man, disregarding those same laws, may be miserably feeble and suffer an early death? Is it, or is it not, a fact, that in the Middle Ages, when people prayed much and studied little, when the peasant went to the shrine for a cure instead of to the doctor, when sanitary science was unknown, and cleanliness was a virtue undreamed of, is it or is it not true that pestilence and black death then swept off their thousands, while these terrible scourges have been practically driven away in modern times by proper attention to sanitary measures, by improved drainage, and greater cleanliness of living? How can that be a visitation of God for moral transgressions which can be prevented by man if he attends to physical laws? Is man's power greater than God's, and can he thus play with the thunderbolts of the divine displeasure? The clergyman prays that the sense of his weakness may add strength to his faith. What a fine irony is here, 
as body and mind grow weak, faith grows strong. As a man is less able to think, he becomes more ready to believe. It is impossible to pass without a word of censure over the passage in the exhortation, taken from the epistle to the Hebrews, which says, For they, fathers of our flesh, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. Good earthly fathers do not chasten their children for their own amusement, while God does it for our profit. On the contrary, they do it for the improvement of their children, while God alone, if there be a hell, tortures his children for his own pleasure, and for no gain to them. The succeeding portion of the exhortation, that our way to eternal joy is to suffer here with Christ, is full of that sad asceticism which has done so much to darken the world since the birth of Christ. Men have been so engaged in looking for the eternal joy that they have let pass unnoted the misery here. They have been so busy planting flowers in heaven that they have let weeds grow here. Yes, and they have rejoiced in the misery and in the weeds, because they were only strangers and pilgrims, and the tribulation, which was but temporal, increased the weight of the glory that was eternal. Thus has Christianity blighted the flowers of this world, and entwined the brows of its followers with wreaths of thorns. The concluding portion of the exhortation deals with the duty of self-examination and self-accusation, that you may not be accused and condemned in that fearful judgment. Very wholesome teaching for a sick man. Sickness always makes a person morbid, and the church steps in to encourage the unwholesome feeling. Sickness always makes a person timid and unnerved, and the church steps in to talk about a fearful judgment, and bewilders and stuns the confused brain by the terrible pictures called up to the mind by the thought of the last day. But worse follows, for after the sick person has said that he steadfastly believes the creed, the clergyman is bidden by the rubric to examine whether he repent him truly of his sins, and be in charity with all the world. Imagine a sick person being worried by an examination of this kind, putting aside the gross impertinence of the whole affair. Further, the minister should not omit earnestly to move such persons as are of ability to be liberal to the poor. When every one remembers the terrible scandals of bygone days, when priests drew into the net of the church the goods of the dying, using threat of hell and promise of heaven to win that which should have been left for the widow and the orphan, one marvels that such a rubric should be left to recall the rapaciousness and greed of the church, and to invite priests to grasp at the wealth slipping out of dying hands. And here the sick person is to be moved to make a special confession of his sins, if he feel his conscience troubled with any weighty matter. And the priest is bidden to absolve him, for Christ, having left power to his church to absolve by his authority committed to me, says the priest, I absolve thee. Confession, delegated authority, priestly absolution, such is the doctrine of the Church of England. All the untold abominations of the confessional are involved in this rubric and sentence, for if the man can absolve a man at one time, he can do it at another. The precious power should surely not be left unused and wasted whenever sin presses. Behold the remedy, and thus we are launched and in full sail. But never in England shall the confessional again flourish. Never again shall English women be corrupted by the foul questions of the priests. Never again shall Englishmen have their mental vigour and virility destroyed by such degradation. 
let the church fall that countenances such an accursed thing, and leave English purity and English courage to grow and flourish unchecked. The devil is in great force in this service, as is only right in a so generally barbarous an office. Let the enemy have no advantage of him. Defend him from the danger of the enemy. Renew in him whatsoever hath been decayed by the fraud and malice of the devil. The wiles of Satan. Deliver him from fear of the enemy. All this must convey to the sick person a cheerful idea of the devil lingering about his bed and trying to get hold of him before it is too late to drag him down to hell. Is there any meaning at all in the expression, The Almighty Lord, to whom all things in heaven, in earth, and under the earth, do bow and obey? Where is under the earth? The sun is under some part of the earth to some people at any given time. The stars are under, or above, according to the point of view from which they are looked at. Of course the expression is only a survival, from a time when the earth was flat, and the bottomless pit was under it. Only it seems a pity to continue to use expressions which have all but lost their meaning, and are now thoroughly ridiculous. People seem to think that any old things are good enough for God's service. The last two prayers are remarkable chiefly for their melancholy and craven tone towards God. We humbly recommend, most humbly beseeching thee. Surely God is not supposed to be an eastern despot, desiring this kind of cringing at his feet. Yet the prayer for persons troubled in mind or in conscience is one pitiful wail, as though only by passionate entreaty could God be moved to mercy, and he were longing to strike, and with difficulty withheld from avenging himself. When will men learn to stand upright on their feet, instead of thus crouching on their knees? When will they learn to strive to live nobly, and then to fear no celestial anger, either in life or in death? End of chapter 19